This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. Time magazine calls George Saunders the greatest short story writer in the English language, and few would dare to disagree. In 2020, he joined us on the podcast to share his advice to budding students of the form, and a few days ago, I had the great pleasure of speaking to him in person about Liberation Day, his fantastic new collection of stories. George, welcome back to the podcast. Nice to be back. Your debut novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, won the Booker Prize and made you a major literary superstar. But at your heart, you're a short story writer more than a novelist. What is it about the short story form that keeps drawing you back? Well, I think it was a first love kind of situation. When we were in grad school, that's what you did. And and Carver was in town. Raymond Carver was in Syracuse. So uh, it's that. And I also think dispositionally, there's something about it that I respond to, you know, to try to cut something down to size is more natural for me than to expand it. So really, it's just kind of an acquired taste. And after doing something for 9 million years, especially like a story which always opens up, you can always find new ones and you're never at the limit of it. Uh, It's really kind of sweet at this age, you know, to go, uh, I can, in the world of the story, I'm still 12, you know, (laughs) or 18 or whatever. It's all all new. And if you go to that with any other attitude, you're going to get in trouble. You know, if you think, oh, no, I've got some awards, I don't have to really worry about it, you'll, you'll sink. So, What have you learned in those nine million years that you didn't know when you were starting out and first getting published? Um, I think that it, it, I, it's more about communication than performance. I think when I was younger, you know, having had my mind blown by these other writers, I thought, oh, you have to blow somebody's mind with how much smarter you are than them or more experienced. And then um, now it's no, you don't. You have to uh, admit that you're one with the reader, that no matter what where you're from or what the differences are, you've got some core centrality and you have to talk to that part of the person. So that's infinite. I mean, you, you can never get to the end of that. And uh, it's hard. You know, it's hard to um, do that while trying not to repeat yourself. Hard to do that if you have any, I guess, anxiety about your place in the world. You have to, every day you have to say, no, I'm, I'm going to imagine the reader as somebody who is like me and, and maybe I'm a little smarter so that's a great practice for the rest of your life, really, you know. You said that winning awards, I assume the Booker Prize for Lincoln in the Bardo, is one of the awards you're referring to. Um, you didn't want it to make you big-headed. Right. But did writing Lincoln in the Bardo change you as a short story writer? Have you come back to the form with a new approach? I think so. And it's just that I am. Uh, it made me a little more comfortable not dancing all the time. Because 
you know, I didn't publish the first book till I was 38. And I did it by being very, very kind of provocatively edgy and, and uh, sort of trying to make every sentence a little percussive and weird. So you, you finally get invited to the party and you don't want to get kicked out. So your tendency is to cling to the, that thing. Uh, with Lincoln, the, the form demanded something else. I had to be a little bit, well, in, in some large patches, I had to imitate, do a passable version of a 19th century letter, for example. So if that sounds edgy, it sticks out. So the whole so style became tone it down enough that it would blend. And some of those sections worked. So I think in this book, I'm a little more comfortable uh, with a pro style that isn't necessarily calling attention to itself, which is kind of feels like a form of growth, you know. You occupy quite an unusual piece of terrain in the literary landscape because you're equally at ease both in fantasy and in reality. You know, you can do imaginative genre fiction and literary naturalism. And there aren't many other contemporary authors who do that, maybe Richard Powers, Jennifer Egan, and a few more, but it's rare. And can you speak to that duality and how you developed your range? Yeah, to me, it's not a difference, actually. You know, in other words, it's all all fantasy. So if you um, look at any given moment, we make it realism by imposing concepts on it so and then what we call realism in fiction is just agreeing to that set of assumptions in language so we say fred walked into the bank on a calm autumn evening but that's a construct it's not actually if you were there with him it doesn't adequately describe what's happening so but we we consent to that because it's kind of fun you know you can pretend that it's real but if you closely examine a Chekhov story it's wild as shit it's not it's compressed it's exaggerated and all kinds of things left out so to me if I put aside the question of realism versus experimental and just say every story is supposed to go to the heart of things somehow and then by whatever means necessary sometimes it's going to be um fun to start in a crazy invented world sometimes it's going to be fun to start in an office but if the goal is to kind of get inside reality and make it more visible, then it's always, you know, it's always got an element of invention and and wildness. Does your background as a geophysical engineer and technical writer influence your literary work? I think so. I mean, the one big way is that in engineering school, they, they give you zero credit for trying, you know, you just, you can try all you want. And if the answer is wrong, you flunk. So that was good training for, especially for somebody who writes the way I do. I do a lot of drafts. So if I do draft 99 and it's not working, I am okay with doing 100. And then the other thing is, I think there, there was a kind of a systems thinking that you were taught in engineering school, which was that if say, you know, a machine isn't working, well, it's not a mystery. It's not a miracle. It's just a machine. So you you look at it analytically. Uh, you see, oh, it's not working because of this. You fix that. It is you know. So to apply that to a story is somehow comforting to me. It's like it's not the muse. It's not a miracle. It's just reading uh, from the beginning and kind of seeing: Am I in it? Am I in it? Am I in it? I'm not in it. Okay, that's page four. What's wrong? So a, a little more of a, a diagnostic approach so you don't have to panic, you know, and you don't have to rely on some kind of uh, mystical source of power. You know, you always have a, a way to kind of um, pull yourself back in a little bit. It's as much craft as it is art, I suppose you could say. Or Yeah, and exactly. And it has to be craft to be art. And, or maybe the two things are not even different, you know. Yeah. So we're here to talk about your new collection of short stories, Liberation Day. And many stories in this collection are concerned with writers and the act of writing, including, I would argue, the title story, Liberation Day. And Liberation Day is satirical science fiction. The premise is that a group of prisoners, and their jailers would say volunteers, but really they're prisoners, tell stories aloud to entertain rich people under the influence of a mind control device. 
And I couldn't help but wonder how much of this was a satire of the literary world itself and its protagonist was a version of you or any writer who reads his or her work out loud to a crowd for their gratification. I, th- I think that, I mean, that never occurred to me until you just now said it, but it's also probably true, you know. So my, my approach is try to have zero ideas at the outset and for as long as I can. Uh, let the subconscious speak, you know, uh, which to me happens through revision, you know, kind of like uh, hundreds of passes through making small choices each time and then somehow i don't don't really understand how but that process opens up a channel for all kinds of things that i don't vet you know and so at the end i'm kind of like in uh i, I finished the book and i kind of know where it means but not maybe not why or what uh so i get to this point where the book's out and then i hear an interpretation i'm like yeah that, that makes sense you know but hopefully it's not the only thing you know in other words right. if we analyze the story and say that's a satire of x if that's all it is, then just write an essay and satirize X. But it's hopefully got, you know, other tonalities that... that. So for me, that was kind of about um, the, the internal motion in that story where you find yourself rooting for a certain character and then something happens to ch- change your allegiance. So And so it was a, that happened several times in the story as I was writing it. And that was where I was going for the heat. Kind of like, oh, that's funny that I really don't like Adult Son Mike and yet he's really correct. And yet he fucked it up and got people killed. And yet, you know, that kind of, I, I associate that with Chekhov. Chekhov is somebody who does that to me, you know. Let's just explain to the listener, adult son Mike is the son of the people who are imprisoning the quote-unquote speakers or writers. And he organizes their liberation and it goes horribly wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he's kind of a, he's sort of an unlikable person who's on the right side of the cause, you know, and we all know those people. <laughs> According to my interpretation of the story, is it being about writing or performance? It's a torturous process, quite literally, in this story. The people who are doing the speaking opinion to the wall, and yet they take great pleasure from it. I wonder if you can speak to that <laughs> in the writing process. Uh, yeah, I think there's some, well, there's some quality to the public aspect of, of being a writer, if you're lucky enough to have one, that is um, kind of like summoning up a certain part of yourself. So for me, I've always, since I was a little kid, loved to be entertaining, loved to attract attention. I was a, so I was a musician for a while and did a little stand-up. and So that part is really natural for me. And yet, if you do it too much, you feel a little like, Ugh, you know. So I think that it, that's in him. He's very much a an achiever. He likes to perform. He enjoys the feeling of being super articulate. Um, and actually, he, he doesn't have many misgivings about it until everything goes south. We, we have him on his behalf, mm. I think, you know. Um, yeah, it's interesting. And even then, he um, afterwards, he's okay with it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, well, I mean, I, I, the one thing I, I, I do identify with him is, is in this way that the, um, the act of writing a story, and when you, especially when you get in over your head, and your, I'd say your subconscious produces something that you had no plan to do that's actually pretty good. That's an incredibly addictive feeling where, you know, the person on the page is better than the day-to-day person. And uh, I kind of live for that moment. And, you know, so you'll, you'll be in that writing room for days on end and it won't happen. And then one day it does. And that, that means you'll be there the next 20, you know, for that little buzz. I want to dig down a bit deeper into the moral aspects of this story. So the speakers are retelling the story of Custer's last stand, both from the indigenous perspective and from Custer's perspective. But neither 
the audience listening to the story nor the storytellers themselves seem to appreciate that there's an implicit critique of their own exploitation going on in the present in that story. They seem almost entirely oblivious of it. Do you worry that your stories and their political dimensions might fall on deaf ears? Uh, yeah, I don't I don't know. I, I don't really... Since that's not really their intention, I, I'm okay with that. Although I'd also say even at, you know, what we call a deaf ear is hearing. There, there's something, you know, you can, uh, a story will only have power if it's shaking something in you that you didn't know was there, I would say, you know. Um, but honestly, I don't, I, I don't, yeah, I don't think of it that way. Like when I'm doing it, it's, it's very much a process of like when you're tuning up a car engine. It's just, why are you doing that? I don't, don't, don't ask me that. I'm doing it. You get you get it tuned. It sounds right. It feels right. Then you're done. And then now this part where we talk about it is, I think my job is to make it a solid enough thing that we can talk about it on the same factual basis. And then it's that's the fun. Then everybody can interpret it as they as they like. Would you read a bit from the story? Sure, for us? sure. So this is kind of the text of the performance that this guy Jeremy is is uh, being forced to. Give. And he's got a, something called a knowledge mod installed. So he, he doesn't know any of this, but it's coming to him uh, via this technology. We begin. Custer attempts to attack the north end of the village, but is driven back by white cow bull et al. In the attempt, an officer, possibly Custer himself, is shot. The men are confused, paralyzed by this unexpected event, the first death of the day among that wing of the seventh. Thousands of warriors now bear down upon them. It is the beginning of the end. They are pursued back up the coulee, fighting well at first, though hampered by their need to bear along the wounded officer. Then it's happening fast, too fast, faster than any of them could have imagined. There's no time to think, reconsider, pray. A man, a boy really, from Kansas, stands aghast, watching four braves on horseback approach. He has lost his gun and his left boot. He wishes to say, Stop, please stop. Let me think all of this over. How did I come to be here? Is there not a method by which I may turn back time and be home? But they're upon him. Oh, John, his friend calls out from nearby, and dying, the boy from Kansas hears this dimly, the last sound he ever hears. Back in Kansas, the boy's mother, at this exact moment, pauses at the water well, bucket in hand, feeling briefly his presence. As she will later say, she will say and say until the last day of her life, with an overlay of such dread and panic that, dropping the bucket, she falls to her knees. The cry goes out among the tribes. We can kill them all. Amazing, thank you. It's uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, the protagonist of the story, has had his autonomy and personality wiped away. And he's being sexually exploited by the wife of his jailer. He tells her erotic stories and things develop from there. It's just not the way around that stories of sexual exploitation normally go. No, and, you know, part of the fun of it was that it, it didn't feel like, I mean, to, to him, it doesn't feel like exploitation. No, it he feels like, it. Yeah. yeah, it's a great opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's, I mean, I don't know. You know, I, you, you start to wonder where the stuff comes from. And it's just, it's just a kind of richness. You know, you're in it. You, you're, you're actually... Um, you know, imagining yourself him. And a lot of the, the thing is just where, where is he sitting? What, what, do his hands hurt? How does, how does he feel? And then, uh, then it just kind of goes from there. And it's so, so fun. <laughs> There's political violence all the way through this collection, not just in the title story. But we've got stories about violent mobs. We've got vigilante violence. We've got fake protesters who fight with police. And 
Of course, the US has a long history of political violence, and you would have to be living on a different planet not to think that was relevant in the current moment. It tends to end badly for your protagonists, or be a tool of their oppressors rather than their liberators. Would you say that's a fair assessment of your own politics? Uh, I think, th- for me, the, the hopeful element of this book is that these people start out deluded and they end up stumbling towards something like truth. And I think that's, you know, it, it's kind of a small victory, but I think that's um, what those the stories have in common. And I feel that like that's kind of where we are in the country, which is we're, you know... I mean, I'm really surprised to find out we have the problems that we do. Uh, even 10 years ago, I had a much rosier view. So then you kind of dust yourself off and say, well, all right, that, it doesn't mean the truth isn't real. It, it doesn't mean that democracy isn't attainable. But the first job is to stand up straight and start, you know, walking toward the toward the light somewhat. But, the, you know, but again, the, these, the political violence, I covered the Trump rally for The New Yorker. And, um, you know, in those stories, you, there's always a moment that's, that stays with you. And in that one, there was... In Phoenix, there was a um, the rallies would release, and there was this kind of really fraught moment where the river of Trump supporters would meet the wall of the anti-Trump people, and it was kind of stagey. You know, there'd be um, fifteen people each screaming at each other, and and there were these two guys who were about the same age, both claimed to be veterans, just inches away screaming at each other with the most hateful things. You know, and. Uh, there was something so sickening about that, you know, because you could imagine that if if it happened somewhere else and one of them had a flat tire, the other one would have helped. But it was a very performative kind of thing. And, of course, the things they were saying were right off of their respective news feeds, you know. So I think that fed certainly that story, Elliot Spencer, which has programmed protesters. But uh, just that kind of frightening, the frightening violence of somebody who's who's possessed by a concept and the concept uh, has been stewed over in private, and then in public, all the sort of our habitual decency just falls away, and suddenly you're you know you could kill somebody. You, it could easily have happened that day. You even get comic mileage out of this. That's in pretty the funny. Ghoul story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm going to leave the listener to read Ghoul and see why von violence is funny in George's estimation. Uh, one of the stories actually envisages the end of American democracy. And it asks us to consider whether we as individuals could do more to resist that. But it leaves the question unanswered. Yeah, that's a love letter. And uh, yeah, I think it, that's part of the, I think part of the job of fiction, and Chekhov said, you, you don't have to answer the question, but you have to formulate it correctly. So in that one, it's a little bit in the future. Uh, things have gone badly. And uh, it's a very you know repressive uh, regime. And so it's just a grandfather kind of gently, lovingly counseling his grandson to stay out of it, you know, which I think... You know, it's not a bad bad advice in some cases. Uh, but I think about halfway through the story, he starts to hear his own voice. And in the face of his, what seems like a very lovely relationship with his grandson, he doesn't like the sound of that voice. So in the, maybe in the last third, he starts to slightly reconsider, you know. So, it was, uh, yeah, that was, I mean, that, that was, a for me, a rare story in that it came directly out of my political feelings and um, uh, right before the election. Uh, you know, just, you know, we might, we... We're in the danger of losing something, and damn, that was a pretty good thing that we had going, you know, and we just squandered it by uh, kind of a decadent inattention. You know, it'll, it'll always be here. We don't have to worry about it. And before you know it, it's it's headed out, and it has a kind of momentum that you can't, you know, you can't stop, which is scary. But I hope, I hope we're not there, but if we are, you know. There is a sense in this collection, in a couple of the stories, that the act of writing itself can be dangerous. Mm. You know, we meet an aspiring children's story writer who finds her calling as an essayist and wannabe vigilante. 
the grandfather you just mentioned has to conceal certain information in his letters because it could cause trouble for yeah. everyone involved. Yeah. Well, it is, I think it is dangerous. You know, I mean, you think about what happened to Rushdie, that, that's ideas translated into incredible violence. So, um, but of course, that also means it can, be, it can be powerful. And I've, you know, it's interesting. When I was a younger writer, I think I had a different idea of how writing influenced things. So I thought you, you wrote, if you're Thomas Paine, you wrote Common Sense and you created a country and so on. But it's been interesting the last few years traveling or before that pandemic, uh, traveling and meeting individual readers. And that's amazing because you see that the, if it does anything, it does small work in one mind at a time. And so in a sense, you think, oh, that's not so much. But then you multiply it times millions of people. Uh, you you look at the effect a book has had on your mind. You know, like I read uh, The Bluest Eye when our kids were little, and it literally altered my entire life. Um, so I think I'm trying to think, well, let's be content with that kind of change. And if you change a million minds in a, a, a permanent way, that's actually kind of a lot, you know. But but again, people know that. People on, on the from the dark side know that. And, yeah, uh, they're and doing they're, it too. And yeah. they're scared of it. Yeah, they're doing <laughs> they're really it. And they're doing it. it and, and, you know, it's interesting because the difference between propaganda and a good piece of fiction it really does have to do with truthfulness and uh false language has has tells in it you know if you if you're a, a trained reader you can you can read a false text and you can say this right here is bullshit uh and i think that's in the states i i kind of hate to generalize but i will but you've got a a, a storytelling system which is say partisan news which is telling a blatantly false story and if you or a better reader, you could see it, you could see it, but uh, for reasons I don't understand, it's it's turning a lot of people. So you know, the the power of story is pretty undeniable. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The other big theme in this collection, for me at least, was work and the banality of work. You know, you've got stories about office gossip, petty power politics, and also the sense of meaning that comes from having a job, even when that job itself is essentially pointless. Mm. Yeah, that's been my experience. <laughs> now, when, when, you know, when I was first out of grad school, we had our daughters really quickly. My wife and I got engaged in three weeks and got married, you know, quickly. Had kids before we even, you know, we knew what was happening. We didn't have any money. And so... Um, and I was trying to write, not having any luck. I uh, had a job as a tech writer at this company. And we had one car, so I was biking to work. And that was, it was pretty pretty scrappy, but happy, you know. Just uh, suddenly to have uh, something to work for was, you know. And it was such an interesting moment of saying, oh, now I understand America. I understand my old neighborhood. I understand my family. Uh, 
he, he didn't like that job, but he had his kids, you know. So uh, I think that's there's something to that. A human being's ability to get in a situation, find some pleasure in it, especially if there's a bigger cause that it's serving. So I, I look back at those days so fondly, you know, you know, and there was no reason. I, I mean, the job was, I was basically running a photocopier and um, often being berated for it. And there was no writing time and there was, you know, but, you know, at the end of the day, there were, there were the, yeah. my wife and kids and I, and I had done okay by them. I hadn't failed on that, you know. In the story Ghoul, characters are working in an underground theme park with no visitors and the visitors will never come. But, it gives their lives meaning anyway. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, there's been a, there's been a systematic move to uh, implement no negative speaking about the job because right. that would make it harder to do. Right. Yeah. Which yeah. is everyone's job ever, right? Right, right, right. I mean, or even, you know, even beyond the job, there, there's ways. That I, it was funny because I wrote that and, of course, I was against it. But on the other hand, I thought, well, you know, given the situation, maybe, mm-hmm. you're, maybe it's the right thing to do. But that, that was another example of a story where I wrote myself into a kind of a, a fix, and then I thought, oh, gosh, I don't, I don't know how to get out of this. But then the pleasure of it at this point is to say, well, the answer is spend a year, and you'll figure it out, you know, and so it's nice. The characters in these stories often think that they're better people than they really are, and they spend a lot of time justifying to themselves that they are, in fact, good people, and the reader may disagree. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's pretty much my inner life, you know, that that kind of, I've got this real, uh, I heard this great expression, monkey mind. So uh, I found it really fruitful to kind of just look at the thoughts of my thoughts in a 30-second burst. And so, you know, almost impossible to represent, really. But the the contradictions and the self-justifications and the defensiveness and the victory and the defeat, it's it's quite rich. So so my thought now is you can get a lot of um, plot out of just making a person uh, through his or her thoughts, they're then predisposed to, to action. You know, if you have somebody who's very, very nervous about being called out in public and he just has a two-page monologue that's funny in which he worries about that and then he, he you know, falls on a flight of stairs, that's a major event because you, you've been sort of front-loaded, you know. You're an ex-Catholic. Mm. Does that inspire your characterization oh yeah yeah i mean that was a i mean i'm a former catholic i don't know if i'm an ex i'm former uh and still kind of catholic so i mean that lapsed is that lapsed catholic lapsed but i lapsed into buddhism you know but i don't really see that much difference actually but no there was a lot of um at that time in chicago you know there was a lot of uh working class neighborhood a surprising level of moral inquiry you know the the um the nuns were expe- expected you to understand morality and talk about it and defend it, and there was a lot of thought experiments. And then, of course, that whole world was full of um, sort of self-loathing. You know, <laughs> like you you were a sinner, and you uh, were going to try to get better, but you were going to fail. You know, but you could confess, but it didn't last very long. You know, that kind of thing. So it's kind of a neurotic playground. <laughs> you know, to have that have that. Uh, but but I was but also the other thing it had is it had a, a real feeling of grandeur and and um uh ritual you know we'd sit in the church for quite a long time your mind would go pretty quiet and things would start to happen and and you know i think one thing i took from that was the idea that all right so there's the mass it's this ritual that's been around for thousands of years and it's developed uh generation by generation to do more than it should be able to do in terms of its its shaping and stuff so that's kind of good training for an artist that you can put more into a thing 
then should it then it should be able to contain, and then a lot of different people can put themselves before it, and it will have some kind of an effect on them, you know. And so I, I find I'm, it's easy to make fun of Catholicism, and I've done it a lot, but there was a real um, introduction to to art, and also I think to maybe uh, spiritual traditions that ended up speaking to me more deeply, like Buddhism. But first, you have to have an experience of reverence when you're a kid, and then it. I think you always have a bit of a hankering to go back to that, you know. And there are no pat moral resolutions in any of these stories. No, because I don't think they're really. I mean, there's always a next day, you know. It, um, but I think in these stories, I, I always feel like you've got. Well, in any story, what has to happen is some, some alteration of circumstances. So it doesn't have to be like in love letters. It's very small. It's just you know, but for it to, in my view, to be a story, you have to start with A and then get to A prime. So whatever moral power story has is maybe in the difference between A and A prime. Mm. So it says, well, uh, a, a person who's working in an underground theme park can actually come out the other end and have a revelation about how silly it is, you know, and resolve not to do it anymore. That's enough for a story, you know. So that's, so that's I think it's moral, you know, in the sense that it's just basically we're not stuck, you know. Uh, no matter where you are, you're not stuck, which then is – you know, kind of related to this Buddhist idea of impermanence. Like, if you uh, if you start out here, you won't stay there, and hopefully, you you'll move to a place that's uh, felt as progress. You know? And it's also just psychologically realistic, right? Right. Yeah, because that that to me is the real the beauty of life is you you um, you occupy occupy a position, the world kicks your ass. You occupy a new position, the world kicks your ass, you know, and then soon you're 80. And, you are and you know, actually you're never going to reach the place where the world doesn't kick your ass. It, 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 it will do that every time. So that's pretty rich, you know, the, um, and it would argue for a set of virtues like, well, I guess being okay, having your ass kicked, you know. Uh, but also, I mean, that the, the hardest thing is, I think, as a person is to be not at rest, you know, everybody wants to be on autopilot and not at rest. And the story, I think, is a mini education in the idea that you, well, it puts you through that process. You, you, in the first third, you think the story is about X. The second third undoes that. That in itself is kind of an education that, that um, one, you can't rest, and two, that you, you're okay with it. If you don't, if you, we're we're more comfortable with unrest than we than we think, maybe something like that. What did you learn about yourself writing this collection? Mm. I think, well, the, the one thing I, I really would like to do is keep growing as a writer until I'm dead. And this book was a challenge in that way because the last book, 10th of December, had a certain, certain pattern to it that I really liked, which was, and again, all from the subconscious, not planned. The stories would lead me to a certain place where an act of heroism was called for. And in several of the stories, a person rose to the occasion. So that was nice to be writing that kind of story. And I was happy to do it. Well, so then you start writing this book and those moments would present themselves. But again, because of the subconscious, they present themselves in occasions where heroism was really not likely or, or, or was impossible. So then I think, oh, God, that's, there's something wrong with the story. Well, no, you're just feeling differently. So at that point, the challenge becomes don't put in a facile act of heroism because that's a shitty story. Okay, what else could the person do? And mostly in this book, the answer is stumble on, you know. 
So it was, I think in some ways they're quieter stories in a certain way, and, and they certainly don't have the big acts of, of heroism. But in my idea of my own development, I dodged a bullet, you know, because you could have just said, well, let's just do that again, you know. So that's kind of the increasingly tenuous task as I get older, you know. What gives you hope for the future? Everything, really. I mean, you know, just, just to be, um, I think it's, it's, it's a corny blessing of older ages that you go, Jesus, I'm still you know, still here. And I think, you know, too, with the pandemic, that, that felt like being a ghost for a few years. Like you could see the world, but you couldn't quite get to it. So I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm pretty much hopeful. I mean, hope to me, hope and despair are, are both sort of equally silly. You don't have to, you know, you're going to have enough trouble and, and joy if you just leave it alone. But I do, I feel interested in, uh, you know, it's kind of like, at this point, I, I realize what I love in this life, and that's a short story. And I mean, in, in a professional sense of what I love. So that's great, you know. Uh, and I also have learned, mostly from writing that Russian book, that there's no limit to the story. The story will take everything you've got. So kind of a cozy feeling, like, okay, so now all i got to do is make time to work on stories every day and see where I go. And then give myself permission for that to be enough. I think that's, you know. What question do you wish you'd been asked in an interview like this one? George, can I give you $7 million? That's where <laughs> I, no, I, I don't. I mean, it's, I, I like these questions. I, like, I, I really enjoy the process of being interviewed because, you know, whatever arises is, is especially a brilliant interview. It's, it's always going to be fun. So. Uh, I'll finish on the question I was asked to novelists and fiction writers. Who are the other writers we should be reading? Uh, I, Marlon James, I think, is a real hero of mine. Somehow it feels like a time to go back to Grace Paley. You know, she's so witty and unafraid. And she was writing in a time of real crisis, and she didn't never lost her courage. You know, there's a really wonderful book called Faithful Rustlin by Georgie Abramoff, and it's uh, it's it's about now because it's a uh, it's often the point of view of a, um, a sort of a German shepherd, uh, an attack dog in a Russian prison, and it's just relentless. He never stops being a dog. And he's a dog who's been trained to kill, and that's what he likes to do. And he's very bummed out because they they break up the concentration camp. And uh, I mean, from a technical standpoint, it's amazing because it, it's full of metaphors, but it never is just a metaphor. He's a dog. You can feel it. And um, it's something, you know, you, we, you talk about empathy a lot in fiction, and that's not a book that you would th- think was an empathetic. It's very harsh and very violent. But then you kind of love that dog. And he's been programmed, you know, and his joy is all about his, his, him living into his programming. And you feel so bad for him because he can't kill prisoners anymore, you know. And it's, it's, a, it's a really deep, short, but very powerful book. And also resonant with a short story collection full of prisoners and guards exactly. who don't quite know what they're doing. Yeah. George, it's been an absolute pleasure interviewing you for the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This episode of the podcast starred George Saunders. It was produced and presented by me, and the series is made by me and Esme Bright, with help from Nicole Wong. George's new book, Liberation Day, is out now, and you can hear more from him in our archive, available wherever you're listening to this. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>